0: All right, all right. How are we doing this morning? It's summertime. We having a good summer so far? Uh, I, I was reminded, that for those of you who are teachers, um, July 4th is kind of that weekend where it, from here on, it's like all you think about is summer's almost over, right? Uh, but I uh, hope you're having a good summer. Welcome today. If you're uh, first time hanging out with us, my name is Mike. I am one of the elders and I am the normal teaching pastor. I love to get up here and share and open the scriptures and Proclaim the gospel uh, through the scriptures to our church and uh, look forward to do this on a very tough question. Um, I like playing cards. Any card players out there, you like playing cards? And there's different types of card games. There's the type of card games where it is all luck. I really don't like those. I like the card games where there's strategy. Because my philosophy about playing anything is that if it's worth playing, it's worth winning just the way I roll, okay? And so random card games where everybody's just flipping cards and nobody knows who's going to win. No, I want a card game where I have strategy, I have to think through it, uh, and, and I get to yell at my partner if they don't play well, which is why my wife doesn't like playing card games with me. Uh, and, and I grew up in a home where, where my, my dad, like every uh, family outing, they would play a game called Rook. Anybody ever play Rook or see Rook cards? Um, may play spades? You ever play that game? Right. For that, those who aren't raising their hands, these are card games where you play with a partner, uh, where, you know, you're trying to win a certain number of hands and all this sort of stuff by playing your cards, uh, you know, as a team. Rook had this one card that was called the Rook. It, it, it had this ugly looking crow on it. And, and why they chose that is is the, the the ultimate card, I don't know, but the rook card was the ultimate trump card. Uh, you know, you had numbered cards, like two through 12 or whatever, and then all these other things in there, but the rook card, no matter what was played in your hand, you know, everybody lays four cards, or everybody lays one card, so you know, well, four cards on the table, and, and you would, the, the highest card would win that trick or that, that journey through the game, uh, but no matter what card was laid, if you played the rook, it was like a drop the mic moment. I win. You, you couldn't lose if you dropped the rook card, right? It was the trump card. Well, we're talking today, our question uh, in this series that we're calling Confronting Christianity that is literally looking at these huge questions that people in our culture ask and see them as, as, as um defeater beliefs for the Christian faith But there's a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin that has written an amazing book called Confronting Christianity, and she deals with 12 questions in the book, and what we're doing this summer is we're looking at the questions. We're not preaching the book. My challenge to you, if you've already bought it and you're reading it, great. If you bought it and you haven't started reading it, get with it. It's worth it. It is a great book that will help you think through the issues and challenges that may may be um, uh, big questions for your faith but also are questions that people that are your neighbors, your friends, family members are asking, uh, and will help you kind of frame a way to interact and engage those questions. Great book. Take the time to read it. We're not preaching that book. We're preaching from the Scriptures and interacting with the And Sometimes we'll reference what she said and other books have said, but we're trying to show, show in the midst of this how the gospel answers these questions. And this question that we have this week is kind of the big trump card. A lot of people think, all right, it's my rook. Like if, if you're having a conversation with somebody who's a skeptic, who's come, uh, they, they just don't believe in Christianity anymore, and they kind of say, all right, I have this question, I have this question. But they, they keep in their hand that trump card. They believe that they can throw it on the table. When they throw it on the table, discussion over, I win. It's kind of the mindset. And the question that, that, that you know, uh, people through the years is called the issue of theodicy. Have you ever heard that word? That literally is the question of of how can God exist if suffering exists? Becomes kind of the trump card. And this is not new. It's, it's, it's been a, a challenge to our worldview, the Christian faith, for as long as our worldview has existed. Going all the way back to the ancient Greek philosophers um, and, and different writings that they would have, a lot of them would interact with this very question and say, I, I can't believe in this sort of God because if that sort of God exists, the suffering in the world just defeats that. More recently, uh, philosopher J. L. Mackey said it this way. He said, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is so much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. Drop the mic. Trump card. And 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 for us, like it becomes, this, he believes that it becomes this challenge. That no matter what you believe, at the end of the day you have to walk away from the faith because there is no explanation for it. Now, one of the things I want to say to you right up front is, that this ain't the rook card. Because when when this hand is played by any worldview towards you, if you're a follower of Jesus, they think they have you in a corner where actually they have also painted themselves in a corner. In other words, every worldview has to answer the question because suffering is real. People hurt. I mean, just this week I I was sitting with a mom whose daughter is Grave with cancer and things are very difficult and watched her suffer as she was going through this. I, I was with, a, we, we spent some time with a woman whose family was falling apart. We have had uh, people who've been ill. We have watched on the news as refugees and immigrants are in the worst possible conditions. It's like, I don't need to stand up here and give you a list of the suffering in the world and to help you realize that it's hard And people suffer in massive, massive ways. And and this quote that I just gave you, we showed on screen, like drop the mic, Trump card is what he believes he has, is really more like your kids when they were 10 years old and they threatened to run away from home. Anybody ever have that? You know, your kids are kind of looking at you going, you know, I'm just leaving here. I'm running away from home. And my response is always, hey, have fun with that. Good luck. Uh, I hope it goes well with you, you know, because what's happening is I'm looking going, I just don't like things that are here, and I don't like the way this is answered, and I don't like that my mom and dad are so tough on me, so I'm going to leave, and I'm going to take off. But the truth of the matter is, the reality out there in the world is a lot harder than anything that goes on in my house. And obviously, I want my kids not to run away to experience that and know that, but I do want them to understand that. Here's what happens with the secular worldview who believes they are dropping the mic on you and on me when they say, I just can't believe in a God who would allow this sort of suffering in the world. Uh, A good God who is good and perfect can allow this sort of pointless evil. Here's the problem, is that the solution that they then have to come up with to describe suffering leaves you with no hope. In other words, the secular, the true secular answer, if you, if you decide you're gonna be agnostic and, and walk away from Christianity, walk away from theism, walk away from this faith, what you were ultimately saying is that there is actually no meaning, no purpose, no, like everything is random and it's like there's nobody from the outside who's coming to help us. And at the end of the day, your suffering is just part of a cold, cruel world and you die and that's it. Now, does that mean it's not true? No, I, 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 it doesn't mean that that worldview is not true. I think there's other reasons that, that mean that that worldview is not true. But all of a sudden, if, if you turn the argument back the other direction and go, okay, what's your solution? If, if you're not gonna believe in God, people suffer, right? What's your solution to the problem? And believe me, that if you look at pretty much any worldview, the problem with evil and suffering as, as it's answered by the different mindsets of worldviews in the world are no more satisfying. In fact, it, it, at the end of the day, I actually think evil and suffering becomes great evidence for the gospel and the truth of Christianity rather than something that we should be afraid of. And so, so if we look around the world, if you, if you look to Buddhism, Buddhism actually says that suffering is an illusion created by attachment to the material world. So at the end of the day, Buddhism will tell you that the suffering is, you really don't suffer. It's an illusion. Uh, and the reason you suffer is because you were too attached to the material world. The way to, to, to overcome suffering is detachment, uh, to, to remove your, any attachment to the world around you. Hinduism tells us that suffering is the outcome of bad karma. In other words, if you were suffering in this life and you go through really hard th- things, it's because in the last, the last life you were terrible and like the, the, the universe is getting you back for the bad karma that you had in the last life. That's why you suffer. That's not very appealing. Uh, Islam tells us that suffering is God's way of putting people under his thumb, of him forcing people to compliance, of, of proving his might over people. And ultimately, atheism tells us that suffering doesn't matter. It's just part of a cold, heartless world. The problem is that for some reason, we have evolved to the point where we think about it. None of those are appealing. But at the end of the day, we still have to wrestle with this question. We still have to interact with it. But on an even deeper level, there is the philosophical question. Like we can ask this question philosophically and say, okay, look around the world and tsunami shows up, you know, a decade ago and close to 250,000 people in one morning die? Earthquakes and famines hit. Human cruelty and evil through wars and dominance, like like what's going on in Ukraine right now, are real. How can there be a loving God who allows this sort of stuff? Now, Now one of the things about this, again, back to quote I read earlier is that there is actually a real self-centeredness to what that philosopher said. Pointless evil is is the the phrase he uses. Unjustifiable suffering is what he uses. But what he has done, what, what the world has done, this is our central issue, is that that puts himself in the place of being God himself. In other words, If it's pointless to me, it must be pointless. If I can't find a justification for this, it must be unjustifiable. That is putting myself in the place of God. Listen, if there is a God, which there is, just because you and I don't know the purpose doesn't mean he doesn't have a purpose. Just because you and I can't make our way in and out of situations and know why things happen doesn't mean that God doesn't sovereignly orchestrate the events of history for his glory and for our good, but we don't always see it in this life. Yet, as we answer this question and we wrestle with it on a philosophical level, the reality is it's not just a philosophical question. It is a question that is deeply personal. We've all suffered, right? We've all been through periods and situations and times of life that were painful, physically painful as our bodies break down or have problems or go through cancer, or we have to go through treatments that leave our immune system broken and struggling. And it's hard for us to make sense of this. We've gone through seasons. We've all gone through periods of life where we've had relational brokenness as people that we were close to and loved either abandoned us or or left or moved. We have gone through through, uh, emotional, deep emotional suffering as um, we've lost loved ones or been the, the cruelty of humanity has touched us to, to see the depth of suffering for people who've been sexually abused and molested and how they have to navigate life. I was, you know, just flipping through the channels and, you know, for 10 minutes caught Forrest Gump again. I just watched a little clip, but I, uh, I, well, I was sitting doing nothing, but in the middle of it, I was reminded that that story is not about forest Gump, it's about Jenny. And the fact that her abusive, I think they hint, sexually abusive father left her with trauma that she just didn't know what to do with. And the rest of her life, the trajectory of her life was set because of this sort of thing. It, It is personal. It is real. We know it. And for some of us, it hasn't been super deep yet, but we know that there's possibility and times for that will come. But we know people who've gone through this and we look into the world and and. The philosophical answer, while it may be helpful, isn't the right answer. The right answer is to do what Jesus did and to step into the lives of people who are suffering and be present and to love them and be real. And so sometimes when people raise this question with you, our answer shouldn't be to try to prove God, but to say, why are you asking this? Where are you hurting? What's your pain? And then offer the presence of Christ with the hope of the gospel with that, right? And so what happens is the Bible, as you start reading the Bible, the Bible doesn't Ignore this. It doesn't act like suffering is an illusion. It doesn't act like suffering is a result of your karma. It doesn't act like suffering is just random. The Bible tells us that there is a God who is sovereign, who is purposeful. We don't know all of his purposes, but he is sovereign and purposeful. But it never hides suffering. It starts from the very first pages telling us that suffering flows from a deep, deep, gift disconnect between us and our creator because of our willful rebellion and our sin, yet the world becomes very, a very broken place because of that. And that God is always accomplishing his purpose in this. And there's all kinds of passages. There's all kinds of psalms that are cries to God of faith in the midst of suffering. There's passages and stories about people who go through the worst of situations. Uh, And and really the culmination of this in the Bible is this amazing book of Job. This massive, massive work about a single man who experiences deep and, and intense suffering in a moment. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of Job is part of what is called the wisdom literature. It's a section of the Old Testament that is, is basically rooted in poetry. It's a whole bunch of giant poems that, that help us learn how to worship and know how to live in the world and function in a fallen universe. But Job specifically is really wading into the question of why is there suffering. It's actually stepping into this question. It is trying to help us interact from a faith perspective, knowing the true and living God is helping us interact with who God is, who we are, and why, the, why there is suffering in the world. And so the story is about a man who is actually an ancient Middle Eastern, uh, fairly wealthy man, uh, who has everything going for him, but Satan has a conversation with God, and God gives Satan permission to steal everything from him. And in a, a couple days, Job goes from being wealthy with a big family and all kinds of things to live for and everything that we think brings us happiness. He goes from that to sitting in a pile of ashes with all kinds of wounds, scraping his wounds with a little knife as he's trying to find, uh, uh, you know, find comfort from the loss of his whole family. All of his children are killed. The loss of everything he owns and everything he has And his own health immediately goes away. And now we have this man who is sitting in a pile of ashes, hurting. Wondering what to make of this. So if you have a Bible, grab your Bible. If you have an app, turn to the book of Job. We're going to actually read the entire book, uh, chapter Job, chapter 3, which is a hard chapter. But to get to Job chapter 3, I need to show you a little bit in Job chapter 2. So, so grab your Bible. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles uh, in baskets at the end of some of our rows. We would love for you to grab one of those. We're actually on page 460 in that Bible. And, and follow along and read that Bible along with us. I'm going to start in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Because what's going on here is that Job is going through this, like everything is happening. His wife is already in this. But the story and, and, and the, the, the beauty of the story focuses in on this man, Job, who's lost everything. But what I want to show you right up front is that his wife becomes the skeptic. She becomes the one who says, I don't think I can believe in a God who allows this to happen. And what we see in this quick passage and then the next chapter is Job interacting with not just philosophical suffering, but his real life of pain. And what we're going to do is we're going to find deep hope in what Job says, but also how the gospel answers what Job says. Okay, so here we go. Job chapter two, verses eight through 10. And he says, he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Listen, Job at this point in time is... Emotionally wounded. He has been deeply traumatized. He is physically hurting. Like, his pain is massive. His suffering is real. It is intense. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Forget this God stuff. Quit, like, where is your God, Job? Where is the one who's supposed to rescue and redeem you? Where is the one who's supposed to keep this from happening? You know, what's going on here? She has become the skeptic. Like the, so many people in our culture who are walking away from the faith, who believe they're playing the rook card. Listen, if there's a real God, this wouldn't be happening in your life. And his response, verse 10 but he said to her, "You speak as one of the foolish women, as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil?" In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. In chapter one, he literally says, uh, "God has given me blessing. God has given me pain. Blessed be the name of the Lord." What we see Job doing is out of the anguish, through the tears that are running down his his ash. Covered face. In sackcloth and ashes, Job says, yet will I praise the Lord. Yet will I bless the Lord. And now he says, listen, do we not receive from the sovereign God both good and blessing? We may not know the answer to it, but I will hold on to my God. And we're told here, this is important for what we're about to read. We are told here that Job did not sin with his lips. Because chapter three is shocking. His expression of pain and anguish is shocking and beautiful. And what Job does in chapter three is Job begins to curse the day he was born. So Job chapter three, let's read it. After Job opened his mouth and cursed the, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness, and and may God above not seek it, nor let let light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let, let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let your night be barren and let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the, stars, uh, let the stars of the dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none Nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Now the first ten verses, here's in, in a very rich, incredibly beautiful section of poetry from the scripture. Job literally is saying, God, why didn't my parents use birth control? Or why didn't I just die stillborn? Because what I'm going through right now, it would have been better for me not to have lived than to have lived and gotten here. Now that's shocking. He literally looks, I mean, check this out. Look at verse, uh, uh, um, I'm trying to find Verse 8, let let it curse the day and those who are ready to rise up Leviathan. Let, Let me explain what he's saying there. He's literally saying, why didn't somebody on the day I was born say, release the Kraken? That's what he's saying. He's saying, why didn't somebody let loose a monster who would have just destroyed everything? That way I wouldn't have been born or if I would have been, would have been like not made it today. This is intense. He is cursing the day he was born. Now, this is why we have to, we can't separate chapter three from chapter two. I couldn't start in chapter three. I had to start in chapter two to show you where the, the scriptures clearly declare to us that Job did not sin with his lips. Chapter three is not an expression of sin. It is not Job going, I don't trust God. I'm not going to hold on to God. But it is in the midst of holding on to God, in the midst of worshiping, in the midst of not giving away, in the midst of looking at his skeptical wife and saying, I'm not walking away from this God because he's been good to me. He now turns and clearly says, but my suffering is so real, it is so intense, it is so hard that I just don't know what to do. And at this moment, while I sit in these ashes and I'm scraping, stra- scraping this boils on my, my body with poverty, but my heart is in anguish for it, from this moment, I, my perspective, I wish I would not have survived my birth. Here's one thing I want to tell you as a follower of Jesus. It's okay to be here. It's okay to be in situations where life is so hard and your pain is so real that, that all you can do is hold on with the thread and believe that it's not your holding on to Christ that matters, it's him holding on to you. It's okay to be here. Job is, the book of Job is set up in such a way so that we see chapter 3 actually is a declaration of faith. And so the first 10 verses are literally cursing the day he was born. Then what happens, we're going to read it here in just a second, starting with verse 11, he starts to ask the question that we all ask when we're going through this when our suffering is real, or we see suffering in the world, and what's that question? Help me out. What's the question that we want answered in, in these moments? Why? You're going to see the word why six times. Job starts to raise the very question. we all God, if you're there, why? Why is this going on? Why, why does the tsunami happen? Why is there the, like a war in Ukraine and refugees? Why? why do normal human beings go through this? Why do I have cancer? Why have I lost my loved one? Why did my, my loved one leave me? Why? And again, the scriptures look at through the the lips of Job, through the pen of Job, tell us it's okay to raise that question. Check it out. Verse 11 here. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did I not, why did the knees receive me? That's kind of a crass way of saying mama's knees receive me, okay? Uh, Why? Did the breast that I should nurse. For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not a hidden stillborn? There's why again. Why was I not a hidden stillborn as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest there the prisoners are at ease together. They, have, they, they hear not the voice of the taskmasters. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Now, I mean, he's just saying, why did I survive? But then he's saying, listen, death and suffering is the great leveler. Rich end up in the, the tomb. Poor uh, prisoners end up. Evil people end up like life is over. Like It doesn't matter which route you take here. This path that ends up in some form of suffering and our last breath is a reality that everybody has. But here's Job going, my life is so hard. I wish that had, like, I wish it would have happened when I was born. Why, Lord, did you let me survive so that I'm going through this now? Verse 20. Why is the light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter and the soul. Who long for death, but it comes not. And dig for it more than the hidden treasures. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is the light given to a man whose way is hidden? Whom God has hedged in. For my sighing comes instead of, my, uh, of bread. And my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me. And that which I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. His last two why questions are really the ones that we're always asking. Verse 20, why is the light given to him who is in misery? In other words, Lord, why did you just leave me alive when, I, when life got this hard? Why, like I'm looking at the world, and I'm seeing how hard life is. It's not the light of, like, the gospel. This is the light of life. And he's saying, listen, Lord, why, why is it that people are allowed to go through such tough things and live through them? And, and then verse 23, he says, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Why is it that people are stuck in situations and there is no way out? And, and you are, like, you give us life, but not just life. Not just light. You allow us, at, like, like as human, we're not like the animals. We we see this, and we're stuck, and there's no remedy, no hope, no options, and we feel like like, why, Lord, I I, I can't deal with this. Now, come on, we've all, on some level, been in this situation, and, and what happens in the story is kind of crazy, because for seven days, his friends sit in the sit in the ashes with him. Like if you read, I'm going to give you a real quick journey through all of Job. What happens in Job after this? And for seven days, his friends sit in the ashes with him and just cry with him. But after a week, they kind of start going, all right, Job, it's time to get over us. It's time to bucket up and move on. you got to pull yourself up by his bootstraps and get strong. And oh, by the way, you've been raising the question why. We have the answer. We're going to explain to you, Job, why you're suffering. And ultimately, we end up with like half the book with his friends arguing with Job and his friend's answer is you're suffering because you're awful. You you may not appear to be, but you've done some really bad stuff. They give us the answer of karma as the reason for suffering, that what comes around goes around. You're suffering because you did bad stuff in your life. And Job keeps saying, listen, I don't think so. As best as I can, I've trusted in the Lord. I've been a righteous man. Not perfect. He needs redemption and salvation like all of us do, but he has sought to walk with God, sought to trust his Lord, and he keeps responding with with declarations of faith, but his friends are wearing a mouth. They keep saying, listen, there's something, there's something wrong. And and here's the deal. One of the things that that we as Christians have done so many times is we look at people suffering and we're like, well, why do bad, why do bad things happen? Why am I going through this? And we want to immediately go like, what'd you do in life? You did drugs. That's why You, you slept with the wrong person. That's why. Where really what we ought to be doing is spinning to the fact that the gospel gives us a better solution. Do we suffer because of our own sin and the sin in the world? Absolutely. But in the midst of that, what we offer is not gloom, we offer hope. And so there's no, like it It doesn't help in the arguments to become like Job's friend to turn to religion and pour all the bad things that you've done in your life as the reason you're suffering. Because we're all on equal footing in this place. We all deserve God's wrath and we've all been offered the grace of Jesus. And, and so we have Job here with this chapter that's really, really hard. And and the story doesn't end there, but we have his friends doing this and, and, and it just lingers there. How does the book of Job answer this question? What happens is if you go to the book of Job and you think, okay, the whole book is about the, the reality of suffering in the world. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read the book of Job and it's a long book and it's a lot of stuff and I'm going to wade through this whole book and what I'm going to do is I'm going to get to the end and I'm, I'm going to hear Job's questions. Why? 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 And what's going to happen is I'm going to get to the end and God's going to say, okay, here's why. I'm going to explain it to you. If you read Job hoping that's the outcome, Job is going to frustrate you. Because God does not answer the why questions He doesn't look at Job and go, hey, Job, you're asking me why. I'm going to show up and I'm going to give you like a list. What God does is God does show up and God does eventually speak to Job. God does call out to him and he says, you have trusted me, but you've asked why. Here's the deal, Job. You're not God. I am. And therefore, I don't have to answer your question because even if I did, it wouldn't make sense. Like, there is God looking at Job going, you have to admit and understand the limitations of your humanity and understand that the sovereignty of God is a deep, beautiful, complex belief system, which means that I'm not always going to get the answer to the question, why? But what God does with the question why is he gives Job something better. And this is the Christian answer. This is what we believe. This is what I'm telling you this morning. We're about to come to a table this morning that tells us this. When we are hurting and suffering and we don't know what to do with the world and our lives are a hot mess and I am sitting in ashes, wounded and hurting. God does not always, when I cry out why, like, he doesn't look at us and go, how dare you? He loves us. He does not answer that question, though, all the time. But what God does for Job and what God does for us is that when we cry out, why, O oh Lord? He doesn't answer the question, but he gives us himself. He gives us himself. He, he doesn't answer the question But we get God in the midst of it. And this is the story of people throughout history who've gone through the worst heartaches, the worst troubles, the worst cursing, the worst pain. That in the midst of it, as they lifted their chin like Job and said, I will still worship. I will hold on. And then go through a long season where it feels like God is silent and not answering. What they do is they find in the midst of that, on the other side of it, that they, in the midst of the worst moments, their deepest pain, they met the creator of the universe there in ways they never could have had they not suffered. That God's answer to the why question is not to answer it, but To come. To come and and this is ultimately true in the gospel of Jesus Christ the story of the bible leads us to the one single innocent man experiencing the worst trauma and suffering of any human in the existence of humanity That's the center of the story. You get that, right? If you're a follower of Jesus or you've been checking Christianity out, what you need to know is that the center of our faith, the center of our story is that God became human and lived a sinless life, which means he is the one person that deserved zero suffering. Yet he absorbed and took on for us the greatest suffering, the greatest separation from God, the greatest pain and, and punishment Of any human being in history, and at the center of this, that event is where Job's questions are ultimately answered, as are ours. Because God's answer is not to give us philosophy, it's that God Himself came into our suffering and joined us here. That's the gospel. That's the story of Jesus, and that's what we hold on to. That's Job's answer, and so, so let me just real quick give, me, give you like four things that the gospel, how does, how does the gospel answer Job's situation, Job's dilemma? We see in the book that it gets answered in this way, but then the story leads us to Job's suffering is great. You got to know Jesus was greater. His suffering was more intense and greater for his whole life and in his death. And how does the gospel answer Job's question? The first one, what we see in the gospel is the truth that you don't suffer without meaning. You don't say like, I may not know the purpose of the suffering that is in my life and the suffering that is in the world, but I can know that my suffering has purpose and meaning. I, I love the story of Jesus when he's in the boat with the apostles and. Here comes this giant storm and they're stuck out at sea and they think they're all gonna die with the boat flipping over. And Jesus is sound asleep in the boat, which to me is hilarious. Like there's stories in, in the, the life of Jesus where I read them. I'm just like, oh, that's actually really funny because they think they're dying. They got buckets that are trying to bail out the boat as the waves are coming into the boat and the, the, the storm is throwing the boat everywhere he wants. And Jesus is crashed out taking a nap in the back of the boat. I know what I would have been doing. I would have been trying to grab a bucket, but I would have been on the side of the boat puking into the ocean. Now, the, way, the reason I know that is because I, I, that's what I do in the ocean when it's just little waves. So, no way this is like. But, but here's these guys, they're terrified. They're fishermen who know how to, to do boat life, but they're terrified. And Jesus stands up and does the craziest thing. He looks at the storm, he looks at the ocean, he looks at what's going on, and he shouts, shouts out at the top of his log, Peace, be still. And the storm stops. I love that story, but what I want is that every time there's a storm, I want that to be the outcome. I, I want, like, why doesn't Jesus just always stand up and say, peace, be still, and the storm's over? Why do some of the storms of our life go on and keep going? Why doesn't he raise that question? And that's a, that's a challenge for us, yet in the midst of this, I can know where I don't understand all the answer to the question why. I do know this about The gospel and the story of our suffering. And and the first part of that is that if you are here and you're a skeptic and you're like, I don't believe, I'm not sure I believe in God, I wanna tell you that God has allowed this world to be this way to bring you to the end of yourself. As long as you believe you can save yourself, you're in dire straits. But when you come to the end of yourself and you lift up your chin and look up, you will find a gracious God there. It's a broken world. And it's a broken world because we're broken people. We need rescue and redemption. And it's not the only reason for suffering in the world, but hear me, suffering in the world is designed by God to help us realize that we can't save ourselves. We need rescue from the outside of ourselves. And for those of us who know Jesus, we can just know that the scriptures over and over and over tell us that anything We we just sang it, right? Anything the enemy means for evil, he will work it for our good. I don't know what that means all the time but I can know I can trust and know that while I may not know the purpose while I may not understand what's going on I know that God is purposeful and he is accomplishing his will in my life that God is sovereign over my suffering and while I wish he would say peace be still if he doesn't it's because he is good and has a purpose for me and that purpose is always going to draw me back to himself now whether or not I do that will determine a lot about how I deal with suffering in my life if i'm a skeptic and i run from god i'm now back to my trying to solve it with my own resources if i'm a christian but i'm i'm fighting and, and refusing to trust and hold on to the lord it's going to create tension in my life yet i can know the gospel tells me that whatever i'm going through god is sovereign and has a purpose and he is in control the second thing the gospel is flat out telling us is that you don't suffer alone especially if you're a follower of Jesus. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're never suffering alone. You're never walking through this by yourself. That God is always present. You may not feel his presence. You may not always recognize his presence, but the cross of Jesus is the story of God leaving glory to come into our suffering and to suffer with us. God is not immune to our suffering. He is not distant from our suffering. He is not like the Hindu God or the Buddhist God, idea of God where suffering is an illusion that we, God has kept at arm's length. The story of the gospel is that God came to us and stepped into our suffering and he suffered with us. He came. He is present. So in her book, Rebecca McLaughlin says this, We have all had experience of being comforted by someone who does not truly understand what we are going through. It is often unsatisfying. But Jesus is no remote deity, watching suffering from a safe distance. He is the God who inhabits our suffering. The prophet Isaiah calls Messiah the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we will see in the Gospels how Jesus is moved with compassion for suffering people. This passion goes beyond sympathy. Jesus does not feel sorry for us in our weakness and pain. He takes the agony on himself. You never suffer alone, which means this. Listen to me. If you are a follower of Jesus, listen to me real quick. We may not get the answer to the question, why? And we may not in this life know the reason that I'm going through what I'm going through. But I can tell you what your suffering does not mean. Declaring from the scriptures with clear authority, let me tell you what your suffering does not mean. Your suffering does not mean that God does not love you. If you're going through heartache and if you feel God is distant, he is working something for your good in your life. If you follow Jesus, you trust in him. And I can tell you, because I know that Christ went to the cross and suffered in your place. His love declaration on the cross proves to us that there's nothing we go through that he won't meet you in. He loves you, he is for you, and he will be with you in your suffering. You don't suffer alone. Lean into him. Hold on to him. And then one of the ways that God gives his presence in our darkest places is through the common grace of, or, or, or the beautiful grace of the faith community where Christ is present with us in the church that comes around us. We, we experienced this in the loss of my, our two fathers last year. My, my wife's dad and my, my father died about two months apart last year. It was a hard year. And my community group were my The presence of Christ came through them. You don't suffer alone. Third thing that that we can be sure of is that you don't suffer without hope. You don't suffer without hope. The truth of the matter is that the gospel reminds us that Jesus suffered, but his suffering was redemptive. That his death on the cross means that no matter what I'm going through, there is redemption, there is hope, there is forgiveness. Like, like Christ suffered more than you ever will. God the Father abandoned him so that we would never be abandoned. And he suffered in ways that you and I can't imagine, but he did this so that he could purchase our redemption and salvation. He died with, he suffered with us, but Jesus also suffered for us. Like, get that. The story of the gospel is that in this question of suffering, Jesus suffered with us. He came and he went through a human life and lived. God became human and went through the worst possible suffering. He suffered with us, but he also suffered for us. And no matter how dark and hurting your life can get, this is why Job can look and say, I I have to receive both good and bad because I know God is good. I will praise the name of the Lord. I will hold on to him this is why Christians through the ages have gone through some of the worst situations and their suffering has led to joy, which is just nuts. Yet it's true. And the last thing I'll tell you is that you, you, your suffering does not have the final say. That, that the story of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't end there. On Sunday morning, he rose again. There is resurrection, our story about suffering. As we wrestle with the issue of suffering and why bad things happen and why people go through hard things, what we need to know is that the story of the gospel does not end with the cross It goes through the cross, but it doesn't end with the cross. It ends up with the fact that on Sunday morning, a group of women went to a tomb and found the stone rolled away. Uh, A group of guys walking ended up talking with Jesus. Later that night, they ate fish and, and had dinner with the one who was crucified on Friday. That Jesus, for real, came out of that grave. He, for real, rose again. And what this was, it wasn't just a cute party trick. It was God declaring that whatever you are going through is not final. It will not have the final say. There is resurrection. And Job saw this. Job in one of his conversations. Listen to this from Job chapter 19. Listen to his words before the cross and resurrection. Yet God inspired him and helped him see this reality from his suffering. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. I find that to be really funny. Job's going, I wish what I was saying could be written down in a book and, and it would stay there forever and people would read it. And here we are. God is inspiring his words, so we have them. And then he says, oh, that an iron pen and lead that they would be engraved in rock forever. For, for verse 25, you can look this up later. Verse 24, for I know, I know. Here's Job in ashes going, I know that my Redeemer lives and on the last day he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has thus been destroyed yet in my flesh will I see God. Hear that. Job is saying, man, I don't get it. I don't know the answer to the question why but this is what I know. My Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives. And because my Redeemer lives, there's going to be a day where this part of me will be destroyed. And then a day where this in my flesh, not some sweet by and by, there's going to be a day where the resurrection of Christ floods my life and I come back and I will see God in my flesh that the suffering will be pushed aside and forever and ever we will be in the presence of the joy of the Lord. So John says, brothers, we we, we don't really know what it's gonna be like. Our lives are hard, they're broken, they, they hurt. And we don't know what we will be, but this is what we do know. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Karma says if you're awful in this life, you gotta be recycled and come back to another life where it's worse. Atheism says if you're suffering, so what? cruel world. The lion eats the antelope. Why should you be any different? And the gospel tells us that God entered our suffering. He suffered with us. He died on the cross in the person of Jesus suffering for us. And then he rose on the third day declaring that your suffering loses. You know what the rook card is? You know what the rook card is? You know what the trump card in this argument is? Easter Sunday. Sunday. Easter Sunday is the trump card. Easter Sunday is the thing that when I go through, like I go through doubt just like everybody else, where life is hard and I wonder, where are you, God? And at the end of the day, this is what I know. I know my Redeemer lives. There's the ace of spades. There's the rook card. Sunday morning, Christ came out of the grave, defeated death, hell, and the grave forever. My suffering is not final. It doesn't have the final say. I should have got a massive amens right there. Not because I said it, because of the truth of the gospel. So I'm going to say it one more time. I know my Redeemer lives, and my suffering does not have the final say. Drop the mic. Glory to God. This morning, as we come to the table of Jesus, John's going to come up here and lead us through the beauty of communion, because what we're doing is we're being reminded that Jesus suffered with us but he also suffered for us. His blood was shed, but as we take the, the bread and drink of the cup, we are being reminded this morning as well that Christ's suffering wasn't final, and neither is mine. If you're here this morning and you, you are hurting, we want to pray with you. I don't just want to give you philosophy and theology we'll have people over here at the end of the service or during our communion time just come over here and let us pray with you let us talk with you if you're here today and you're like i don't get it i'm a skeptic i'm not sure we would love to talk to you about what it means to trust in and hold on to jesus this morning and for the rest of us we're going to experience communion as an act of saying i know that my redeemer lives and holding on so john lead us as our band comes forward ready to lead us in worship after that
1: good morning uh For communion, if you'll enter the table coming up the center aisle and then exit down these side aisles. And if you're a a follower of Jesus and have put your faith in him, you're welcome to this table. It's for all believers. And we have two options when you come up. We have bread broken in pieces that you dip into the cup. Or there are little packets that are gluten-free self contain both the wafer and the juice. If you if you prefer that option, so this is our response time. We can respond through giving. If uh, you'd like to give, there's baskets here, the gray baskets. We respond through com- taking communion together, and we we respond through singing. So I'm going to lead us through a couple of things, and uh, then close with prayer on the night. Before Jesus gave his life, he gave his disciples this celebration as a way to remember the sacrifice that he made for us. So we we invite you, as uh, I pray through this, to also examine your heart and repent of any sin. And remember that this is a time to remember the forgiveness given to us by God and the fellowship that we have with one another. In remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the lord 's death until he comes. We pray with me, Lord Jesus. This is a time of remembrance and a time to look. We look to the cross, we look to the supper that you celebrated with your disciples, and we look ahead to a feast when you come back to take us home and we look at one another because we share this fellowship the the love you've given for your church and we we ask that you forgive us of our sinfulness of our, our negligence to look after others and love them as as you have loved us but we know that our sins are are washed away by your blood and we remember that now